Hello, this is Jeremy Morlock, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the Thursday, May 25th edition of the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Push by U.S. to Stitch Together Cities Long Severed by Highways By Mark Walker Anthony Roberts set out to walk to a convenience store on the opposite side of a busy highway in Kansas City, Missouri, one afternoon. It wasn't an easy trip. First, he had to detour out of his way to reach an intersection. Then he had to wait for the light to change. When the walk signal finally came on, he had little time to cross several lanes of traffic and reach the highway's wide median. Finally, he had to make it across the other set of lanes to complete his trek. For a person who doesn't have a car, it's very hard, especially in the wintertime, Mr. Robert said. No one wants to take a risk with their lives trying to cross the highway. Mr. Roberts's journey is a small example of the lasting consequences stemming from the construction of highways slicing through urban neighborhoods in cities around the country. Completed in 2001 after being in the works for decades, the highway in Kansas City, US 71, displaced thousands of residents and cut off predominantly black neighborhoods from grocery stores, healthcare, and jobs. Kansas City officials are now looking to repair some of the damage caused by the highway and reconnect the neighborhoods that surround it. To date, the city has received $5 million in funding from the Biden administration to help develop plans for potential changes, such as building overpasses that could improve pedestrian safety and better connect people to mass transit. The funding is an example of the administration's efforts to address racial disparities resulting from how the United States built physical infrastructure in past decades. The Transportation Department has awarded funding to dozens of projects under the goal of reconnecting communities including $185 million in grants as part of a pilot program created by the $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure law. The project in Kansas City also shows just how difficult and expensive it can be to reverse long-ago decisions to build highways that slashed through communities of color and split up neighborhoods. Many of the projects funded by the Biden administration would leave highways intact but seek to lessen the damage they have caused to surrounding areas. And even taking out a roadway is just the first step to reinvigorating a neighborhood. Once you wreck a community, putting it back together is much more work than just removing an interstate, said Beth Osborne, who served as acting assistant secretary at the Transportation Department during the Obama administration and is now director of Transportation for America, an advocacy group. The United States has a long history of highway projects dividing urban communities that dates back to the construction of the federal interstate highway system in the middle of the 20th century. In recent years, the idea of removing some of these roadways has gained traction in cities around the country, including Detroit, New Orleans, and Syracuse, New York. In his first year in office as part of his infrastructure plan, President Biden proposed a $15 billion federal program to help bring improvements to communities harmed by the construction of transportation infrastructure. His original proposal was whittled down to a much smaller program, with $1 billion in funding, in the bipartisan infrastructure package that Congress later approved. The Transportation Department announced the first batch of grants under the program in February, awarding $185 million to 45 projects. The grants included about $56 million to help build a deck over an expressway in Buffalo, and $30 million to go toward redesigning an urban freeway in Long Beach, California. In a visit to Buffalo after the grants were announced, Pete Buttigieg, the transportation secretary, said that planners of some highways had, quote, built them directly through the heart of vibrant communities, sometimes to reinforce segregation, sometimes because it was the path of least resistance. 
almost always because black neighborhoods and low-income neighborhoods did not have the power to resist or reshape those projects. Now most of the people who made those decisions aren't around today, Mr. Buttigieg continued. No one here today is responsible for creating that situation in the first place, but all of us are responsible for what we do in our time to repair it, and that's why we're here today. Kansas City officials received just over $1 million from that program to study how to reconnect another part of the city, the West Side neighborhood, which is separated from other areas by a different highway, Interstate 35. The Transportation Department is also using other grant money to support projects meant to stitch communities back together. The $5 million award that Kansas City received to address the impact of US-71 came from a program called Rebuilding American Infrastructure with Stability and Equity, or RAISE. The grant is meant to help the city devise plans for improvements along one stretch of the highway. City officials are not seeking to remove the roadway altogether, but they want to make it safer for pedestrians to get from one side to the other. Building overpasses could spare residents from the dangerous trip across the highway on foot and make it easier to get to a nearby bus route. The idea for what is now US-71 can be traced to the 1950s, when it was envisioned as a way to connect downtown Kansas City with areas to the south. A legal battle in the 70s and 80s delayed construction for more than a decade, and a portion of the route was ultimately refashioned into more of a parkway. Thousands of people, including many black families, were displaced to make way for the 10-mile roadway, which is also known as the Bruce R. Watkins Drive. Its construction left a lasting imprint on Kansas City. The city's Country Club District, a group of historic neighborhoods west of the highway where homes commonly fetch upwards of $1 million, was untouched by the roadway. The area to the east of the highway is markedly different, with lower property values and more abandoned and foreclosed homes. Kansas City's mayor, Quentin Lucas, said it was impossible to live in his city and not know the scar that the highway left on the black community. Churches, schools, and businesses disappeared after it was built, he said. Mr. Lucas said that fighting to undo the damage caused by the roadway, and righting the wrongs that had affected the city's black residents, was a top priority for him. It's how to make sure we are linking businesses on both sides, how do we make it easier for people who can cross without a car, and how to engage a neighborhood and not have them known as just a highway, he said. Ron Hunt, who for decades has lived in the Blue Hills neighborhood west of US-71, said he had watched the highway cripple the area economically, drive up crime, and limit access to grocery stores. Mr. Hunt said that as other parts of the city continued to grow and blossom, it pained him to see his community wilt after the highway was built. Residents like Lisa Ray are trying to preserve what remains of neighborhoods they loved. Ms. Ray grew up in Town Fork Creek, just east of US-71, which was once a pleasant middle-class area filled with black-owned businesses. But the highway destroyed it, she said. It sounded good 40 years ago when they first started this project, she said. It did not turn out the way any of us thought it would. Now she and other members of the Town Fork Creek Neighborhood Association volunteer to provide food and other necessities to elderly residents whom the highway has cut off from grocery stores. They also buy trash bags and organize cleanups to keep bottles, car parts, and papers from lining the streets. The Neighborhood Association has spent money purchasing door security bars to help prevent break-ins in the area. All we do is try, Ms. Ray said. I try every day, block by block. I can't help everyone, but I do try. Intra-party showdown escalates among Texas Republican leaders by J. David Goodman. 
The Texas Capitol was unexpectedly gripped by an escalating intraparty showdown among top Republicans on Wednesday, after a House committee took steps toward the possible impeachment of the Republican Attorney General, Ken Paxton, over charges of corruption and abuse of office. The allegations had been lodged before against Mr. Paxton, but they gained new force as investigators working for the Republican-controlled House panel, the Committee on General Investigating, publicly detailed each accusation over three hours of public testimony, concluding that Mr. Paxton had most likely committed crimes. Whether the committee would recommend impeachment or stop short of doing so remained an open question. But the Republican House Speaker, Dade Phelan, whose own resignation Mr. Paxton publicly called for this week, signaled his openness to that outcome. The Attorney General appears to have routinely abused his powers for personal gain and exhibited blatant disregard for the ethical and legal propriety, a spokeswoman for Mr. Phelan said in a statement. Speaker Phelan stands in full support of the General Investigating Committee and the recommendations that may come as a result of their thorough and diligent investigation. By Wednesday afternoon, lawmakers and lobbyists around Austin were already discussing the possibility of an impeachment vote and a subsequent trial in the Senate, and how that could alter the balance of power in the Republican-dominated Capitol. For months, barely concealed acrimony has been brewing among top Texas Republicans from different ideological camps, with Mr. Paxton aligned strongly with supporters of former President Donald J. Trump and Mr. Phelan seen as a more traditional Texas Republican. The most recent tensions initially burst into public view on Tuesday afternoon when Mr. Paxton, who is already under indictment for securities fraud, accused Mr. Phelan of performing his duties while drunk and called for the Speaker's resignation. The move sent a shock through Austin. Shortly after, word came that Mr. Paxton might have had a personal motive for attacking the Speaker. The House Investigating Committee had subpoenaed records from Mr. Paxton's office as part of an inquiry into the Attorney General's request for $3.3 million in state money to settle corruption allegations brought against him by his own former high-ranking aides. The sordid accusations recalled an earlier era of outlandish behavior and political posturing in the state capitol. But the tangled web of resentments and finger-pointing also highlighted a much simpler and more consequential political reality in Texas. Though they may have control over the legislature and every statewide office, Republicans have not always agreed on what to do with their power. The investigators, who include former prosecutors, outlined the evidence they had collected against Mr. Paxton, finding that he had abused and misused his office to help a real estate developer and donor, and retaliated against those in his office who spoke up against him. The investigators said that of the roughly 80 employees in the Attorney General's office contacted for the inquiry, only one did not fear retaliation for participating. As the investigators met, the Attorney General suggested on Twitter that he believed the Texas House was preparing a case to impeach him. It's not surprising that a committee appointed by Liberal Speaker Dade Phelan would seek to disenfranchise Texas voters and sabotage my work as Attorney General, Mr. Paxton said in a statement on Wednesday aimed at his base of supporters, many of whom view Mr. Phelan as aligned with Democrats. Mr. Paxton did not refer explicitly to impeachment, but his comments about disenfranchising voters appeared to be a reference to a possible outcome of the committee's investigation. The timing of Mr. Paxton's accusation against Mr. Phelan on Tuesday coincided with word of the committee's subpoenas and the public hearing the next day. Mr. Paxton based his assessment and his call for Mr. Phelan to resign on a video circulating online from a late-night session of the House on Friday. At about the 5-hour, 29-minute mark in an official House video, Mr. Phelan appears to slur his words as he is speaking. 
Some people who were inside the House chamber on Friday said that they did not notice any issues with Mr. Phelan's behavior, though his speech did sound slurred in one section of video, which came toward the end of more than 12 hours of hearings and votes overseen by the Speaker that day. Mr. Phelan's office brushed aside Mr. Paxton's accusations as a last-ditch effort to save face. Even so, it underscores the degree to which his leadership of the Texas House has enraged far-right lawmakers and conservative activists aligned with Mr. Paxton. They have complained that Mr. Phelan has blocked or watered down their priorities on law enforcement on the border, public money for private school vouchers, or displaying the Ten Commandments in public schools. The House has often acted as a relatively moderate Republican bulwark against the most conservative instincts of the party's right wing, to the consternation of some in Austin and the relief of others. But the committee's investigation into Mr. Paxton added an unusual element to the usual infighting. Though many of the allegations presented to the committee on Wednesday were not new, the hearing was the first extensive examination by the legislature, and it provided new details and context on Mr. Paxton's efforts to help an Austin developer, Nate Paul, who gave Mr. Paxton $25,000 in contributions in 2018. The investigators said that Mr. Paxton also had an affair with a woman who worked in Mr. Paul's office, and that Mr. Paxton punished or isolated employees who confronted him about his actions. Mark Donnelly, a former prosecutor with the Harris County District Attorney's Office, said that those who provided information to the investigators were often, quote, the cream of the crop in their fields, who resented Mr. Paxton's behavior. The feeling was shared almost universal, Mr. Donnelly said, that the actions they were being asked to take, the positions they were being put in, the decisions made by the Attorney General, sullied the office and sullied their commitments on their careers. The situation surprised even longtime observers of Texas politics. I would say this is as detrimental and important a scandal as we've seen in Texas political history, said Brandon Roddinghouse, a professor of political science at the University of Houston who's working on a book on Texas political scandals, not just because of what happened, but because of how long it's been going on and how Paxton has been able to survive it. The controversy over whether Mr. Fallon was drunk was fairly mild in comparison with the allegations against Mr. Paxton, he added. We've had some pretty serious malfeasance in Texas history, he said. Much of the information and accusations against Mr. Paxton had been known for years in Texas. In 2020, several of his top aides took their concerns to the FBI and the Texas Rangers. Four of the aides, Ryan Vassar, Mark Penley, James Blake Brickman, and David Maxwell, have also sued Mr. Paxton. The case is pending. Earlier this year, Mr. Paxton said he had reached a settlement with them and asked the state to pay the $3.3 million. But Mr. Phelan balked. I don't think it's a proper use of taxpayer dollars, he said in a television interview in February. It was the request for settlement funds to avoid a public trial that triggered the investigation by the House Committee, Mr. Phelan's spokeswoman said on Wednesday. As a result, details of Mr. Paxton's activities were laid out more publicly than before. One of the investigators, Therese Buse, told committee members on Wednesday that Mr. Paxton may have violated several state and federal laws, including abuse of official capacity, violation of whistleblower statutes, and dereliction of duty. That's alarming to hear. Curls my mustache, responded the committee chairman, Representative Andrew Murr, a Republican with a notably twisting mustache. Several Republican lawmakers approached for comment declined to discuss the subject of Mr. Paxton's accusations or a possible impeachment. Representative Chris Turner, a Democrat from the Dallas area, said that because of the accusations against Mr. Paxton, the Attorney General was, quote, 
the last person who should call on anyone to resign. This is someone who is under multiple indictments, under an FBI investigation, tried to overturn a presidential election, he said, referring to Mr. Paxton's efforts to challenge the 2020 election results. So Ken Paxton ought to tend to his own affairs. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier radio reading service. In Sputtering Livestream, an Echo of Twitter's Woes, by Ryan Mack. Hosting Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in a Twitter audio event on Wednesday to announce his presidential run was supposed to be a triumphant moment for Elon Musk, the owner of Twitter. Instead, the event began with more than 20 minutes of technical glitches, hot mic moments, and drowned out and half-said conversations before the livestream abruptly cut out. Minutes later, the livestream restarted as hundreds of thousands of listeners tried to tune in. Mr. DeSantis had not said a word at that point. That was insane. Sorry, Mr. Musk said. Behind the stop-start Twitter space, an audio-only livestream on the social network, was a company that has undergone major changes in recent months. Since Mr. Musk bought Twitter last year for $44 billion, he has reshaped it by cutting more than 75% of its workforce, changing the platform's speech rules, and reinstating suspended users. Outages have been on the rise, as have bugs that have made Twitter less usable. The technical problems on Wednesday showed how Twitter is operating far from seamlessly, turning what was supposed to be a crowning event for Mr. Musk into something of an embarrassment. Mr. DeSantis's announcement had been an opportunity for Mr. Musk, an unpredictable executive with interests in many fields, to promote his multiple agendas. Those included a political coming out for the billionaire, who has flirted with right-wing accounts in politics for years on Twitter, but has never embraced a presidential candidate the way he has the Republican governor. And it was supposed to be a way for Mr. Musk to advance his business interests by highlighting Twitter, which he is trying to turn around. Yet as the Twitter audio livestream faltered, the reaction, including on Twitter itself, was shock and scorn that what should have been a carefully choreographed announcement of a presidential run had stumbled so badly. The hashtag disaster appeared on many posts. Others took potshots at the failure, with President Biden's personal at Joe Biden account tweeting a donation link with the words, this link works. David Sachs, a tech executive who moderated the audio event with Mr. DeSantis and who is a confidant of Mr. Musk's, tried downplaying the technical problems. We got so many people here that we are kind of melting the servers, which is a good sign, he said during the first live stream, which sputtered out. Mr. Musk did not respond to a request for comment. Inside Twitter, employees had been alarmed by Mr. Musk's turn into politics and whether the social media site could handle the influx of traffic, three employees said. There was no planning for what are known as site reliability issues for the event with Mr. DeSantis, two of the people said, and workers were prepared to do whatever they could to keep the social network running. When the audio event began at about 6 p.m. Eastern Time, more than 600,000 listeners joined, causing Twitter's mobile apps and website to sputter or crash, two employees said. Mr. Musk later said that his account, which has 140 million followers, and which promoted and launched the live stream, had brought in too many listeners and that Twitter's systems had been unable to handle them. Twitter's systems recovered, the employees said, but the restarted live stream with Mr. DeSantis had a smaller audience, with about 275,000 listeners. Even before the glitches, the event had drawn criticism, especially since Mr. Musk has said Twitter is a politically neutral platform. Michael Santoro, a professor of management and entrepreneurship at Santa Clara University, 
so the event undermines the claim of impartiality. As the owner of the company, he's using major resources and power and outreach of the company to express any view, Mr. Santoro said of Mr. Musk. But others said they were not surprised that Mr. Musk was trying to mold the social platform in his own image and beliefs. A self-proclaimed moderate, Mr. Musk voted for Democratic presidential candidates like Barack Obama and Mr. Biden. But in recent years, he has taken a rightward turn, which has been laid out in full on his Twitter profile. He has posted critically about what he calls the woke mind virus affecting Democratic politics, has shared right-wing conspiracy theories, and has repeatedly praised Mr. DeSantis for nearly a year. Jason Goldman, a former vice president of product at Twitter, compared Mr. Musk's moves with Twitter to the creation of an echo chamber, where he has put his own interests front and center. He is the moderator, and the content surfaced and promoted is that which is most pleasing to him, Mr. Goldman said. In recent months, fears about Twitter's reliability have surfaced repeatedly. After Mr. Musk began laying off thousands of its employees last year, many users were so alarmed by the cuts that hashtag RIP Twitter and hashtag goodbye Twitter began trending. The company staved off any shutdowns and continued operating, but outages rose. In February alone, Twitter experienced at least four widespread outages, compared with nine in all of 2022, according to NetBlocks, an organization that tracks internet outages. The company's technology operations have become more precarious since November, current and former employees have said. Mr. Musk also ended operations at one of Twitter's three main data centers, slashed the teams that work on the company's backend technology such as servers and cloud storage, and eliminated leaders overseeing that area. On Wednesday, after the Twitter space restarted, Mr. DeSantis finally got the chance to speak. He made his stump speech, then complimented Mr. Musk for buying Twitter. He also praised Mr. Musk, who often declares his support for free speech, for that commitment, and said the Twitter owner would surely make money off his investment in the company. Mr. Musk is a good businessman, Mr. DeSantis said. In Twitter spaces, he later added, is a great platform. Navy Destroyer Sunk in World War II Discovered Off of Okinawa by John Ismay A U.S. Navy destroyer sunk in 1945 by a kamikaze aircraft during the Battle of Okinawa in World War II has been discovered by a group of civilian underwater explorers deep in the Pacific Ocean, the group's leader said on Wednesday. The USS Mannert L. Abley was the first warship hit by what was then a new Japanese weapon called an Oka essentially a flying bomb capable of reaching speeds of 600 miles per hour. A group called the Lost 52 Project, which searches for Navy submarines and warships sunk during World War II, found the ship in December. The U.S. Navy's Naval History and Heritage Command in Washington, which is responsible for tracking the 3,000 ships and submarines the service has lost at sea in both peacetime and war, confirmed the discovery in April. The Battle of Okinawa was the biggest battle of the Pacific Campaign said Tim Taylor, who leads the Lost 52 Project. 50,000 casualties just on the U.S. side, so it's a monumental find. And it's a very deep connection for me, he added. My dad's ship was hit by a kamikaze just 10 days before the Abley was sunk in the same area, maybe 90 miles south of there. The small warship was one of many that encircled Okinawa during the campaign to take the island by force during World War II. It used its radar to spot enemy planes coming from the Japanese mainland and relayed information to aircraft carriers, which could then launch fighter planes to intercept them. The Abley fought off numerous attacks by Japanese kamikaze pilots, 
who flew suicide missions near the end of World War II. But it succumbed after two planes crashed into its starboard side and exploded, sending it to the bottom. Its precise location, until recently, had been unknown. In all, 84 sailors from the Abeli were killed by the twin explosions, the sinking of the ship, or Japanese pilots who strafed and bombed the survivors in the water afterwards. Sam Cox, a retired Navy Rear Admiral who leads the Navy's historical command, said that identifying the ship was fairly easy given the evidence the Lost 52 team provided. The Navy considers the Abeli, and others sunk like it in combat, a tomb, and will leave the ship in place undisturbed. Roughly a dozen Navy destroyers like the Abeli were sunk during the Okinawa campaign, along with other ships, killing about 5,000 sailors, Admiral Cox said. The Lost 52 Project, which takes its name from the number of U.S. Navy submarines that went missing in World War II, has located a number of wrecks, including the USS Greyback, a submarine that sank in combat off Okinawa the year before the Abeli. Mr. Taylor has been using autonomous underwater vehicles to locate and survey the wrecks. Family members of the former crew members welcomed the Abeli's discovery. I think my father would have been extraordinarily intrigued and would have wanted to see every detail, said Scott Anderson, whose father Roy served as a junior officer aboard the Abeli. But I'm not sure what trauma that might stir up. In 2007, Roy Anderson wrote a book about the ship's wartime service titled Three Minutes Off Okinawa. He died in 2014 at age 94, his son said. He once told me he rarely had a good night's sleep since the ship sank, Mr. Anderson said. The ship's namesake, Lieutenant Commander Mannert L. Abley, commanded the USS Grunion, a submarine that was lost at sea. He received the Navy Cross posthumously for sinking three Japanese ships in a single day during the war. The Navy commissioned a ship in his honor on July 4, 1944. According to a Navy history of the Abley, on April 12, 1945, the ship suddenly found herself surrounded by hostile planes while patrolling 75 miles off the northern coast of Okinawa. At 1.38 p.m., the ship's gun crews hit one Japanese dive bomber, lighting it on fire and sending it crashing into the ocean. About an hour later, three Japanese Zero fighter planes approached. The Abeli shot one down, but a second crashed into the ship's starboard side and exploded, killing nine sailors. One minute later, the Abeli was hit again, but this time by a rocket-powered aircraft called an Oka, Japanese for cherry blossom. The Oka's pilot crashed into the ship, and more than 2,600 pounds of explosives it carried detonated, breaking the Abeli in two and sinking it in 4,500 feet of water. The Abeli and other Navy warships around Okinawa helped to draw kamikaze attacks away from troop transports and supply ships supporting the battle ashore, Admiral Cox said. The ships couldn't run away, Admiral Cox said. They had to stay and fight. Tentative Deal End Strike by Queen's Hospital Doctors by Joseph Goldstein Resident doctors ended a three-day strike at Elmhurst Hospital Center in Queens after reaching a tentative deal on Wednesday that they say brings them closer to earning as much as their counterparts in Manhattan. The strike was the first by hospital doctors in New York City in more than 30 years, and it drew widespread attention in part because of where it occurred. Elmhurst was one of the first hospitals in the United States to be overwhelmed by COVID-19. Descriptions by Elmhurst doctors of desperate and dying patients in March 2020 offered a warning to the rest of the country of what was coming. The pandemic has led to a rising tide of activism among doctors. The strike participants, more than 150 in all, as newly minted doctors undergoing training in hospitals are called. 
their demands included higher pay and stronger guarantees for hazard pay in the event of a future pandemic. Dr. Tanathan Kajorn Sak Chai, one of the residents' leaders, said the tentative deal put him and his colleagues much closer to achieving parity with some of their colleagues in Manhattan. We got more than we would have gotten otherwise, he said, adding, it's a big fight that this small group of residents has taken on. Elmhurst is one of the city's 11 publicly run hospitals, which treat many of the city's undocumented immigrants, its working poor, and its indigent patients. However, resident physicians working at Elmhurst are not employed by the public hospital system, but by the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in Manhattan. As a result, the city's public hospital system, NYC Health and Hospitals, was mainly a bystander in the labor dispute. The residents noted that their salaries were lower than what Mount Sinai pays residents at its highly ranked hospital on East 98th Street, opposite Central Park. The salary difference is about $7,000 for first-year residents, they said. Some of the striking doctors said they believed that the pay disparity was related to the fact that many of the resident physicians in the city's public hospitals are foreign nationals who are here on visas. The proposed agreement is fair, responsible, and puts patients and residents' educational training first, said Lucia Lee, a Mount Sinai spokeswoman. The union representing the striking doctors, the Committee of Interns and Residents, said the doctors would be back at work Thursday morning. The strike, which began on Monday, involved only resident physicians from the Departments of Internal Medicine, Pediatrics, and Psychiatry. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. One year after the attack, Biden implores Congress to stop the next Duvalde. By Peter Baker. President Biden, in a somber speech evoking the pain of the death of two of his own children, implored Congress on Wednesday to please do something to stop the flow of guns involved in mass shootings like the school massacre that killed 19 children and two teachers a year ago in Uvalde, Texas. Marking the anniversary of the killings, Mr. Biden called again for tighter laws on firearms, including a ban on assault weapons like the one used by the killer in Uvalde. But he implicitly acknowledged that the chances of passing such gun laws anytime soon were slim, and he offered no new ideas on how to overcome entrenched opposition. How many more parents will live their worst nightmare before we stand up to the gun lobby? The president asked during a brief speech at the White House, flanked by the First Lady Jill Biden, and standing in front of 21 burning candles honoring the victims. It's time to act. It's time to act, he added. It's time to make our voices heard, not as Democrats or as Republicans, but as friends, as neighbors, as parents, as fellow Americans. In a nod to the political reality of a Congress heavily influenced by gun rights activists and to the frustrations of many families of those killed, he said, I know for a long time it's been hard to make progress, but there will come a point when our voices are so loud, our determination so clear, that we can no longer be stopped. We will act. Mr. Biden's statement came a year after a gunman burst into Robb Elementary School in the small Texas town of Uvalde and opened fire on a fourth grade class in one of the deadliest such campus attacks in American history. More than 370 police officers responded, but failed to confront the gunman for 77 minutes. School and police officials later lost their jobs, and the school district dismantled its police force altogether. The school building is set to be demolished. But the slaughter did little to move lawmakers at the state or national level. While a Texas legislative committee advanced a bill raising the age to buy an AR-15-style rifle from 21 to 18, the bill never got a vote on the House floor. 
the state also stopped defending in court a higher age requirement for carrying a handgun, effectively lowering the age for that to 18 from 21. Congress passed legislation with modest changes, enhancing background checks for gun buyers under 21, increasing funds for mental health crisis intervention, bolstering laws against straw purchases, and encouraging states to enact red flag laws authorizing the government to temporarily take guns away from anyone deemed likely to pose a danger to themselves or others. Mr. Biden signed those measures into law. In his statement on Wednesday, Mr. Biden said that legislation did not go far enough and again called on Congress to ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines, impose universal background checks, require safe storage of firearms, pass a national red flag law, and eliminate immunity from liability for the gun industry. The National Rifle Association has resisted such laws, calling them part of a larger campaign by leftist politicians to undermine the Second Amendment and ultimately take guns away from law-abiding citizens. Gun-hating politicians, media, and activists label law-abiding Americans as crazy if we even begin to suggest their end goal is confiscation, the group wrote on Twitter this week, citing a White House post on that platform advocating an assault weapon ban. They scream, no one is coming for your guns. However, today's White House tweet advocating for widespread gun bans contradicts this. During his speech at the White House, Mr. Biden addressed the loved ones of those killed in Uvalde in personal terms. To the families of the children and the educators, we know that one year later it's still so raw for you, Mr. Biden said. A year of missed birthdays and holidays, school plays, soccer games, just that smile. A year of everyday joy is gone forever. The bend of his smile, the perfect pitch of her laugh. He made clear he was speaking from experience, later alluding to his traumas as a parent who lost his first wife and one-year-old daughter in a car accident in 1972, and then his grown son Beau Biden to cancer in 2015. While everyone's pain is different, we, like many of you, have some understanding of what it's like to lose a child, on more than one occasion, he said. For those who have lost a loved one in Uvalde, to the moms and dads, the brothers, the sisters, the grandmoms, the grandpops, this is what I know, he said. They'll never be gone from your heart. They'll always be part of you. Orcas have been battering boats in southern Europe, puzzled scientists say. By Isabella Quai. Hours into a journey from Portugal to Morocco, the crew of a 46-foot sailing cruiser noticed something was wrong with the rudder. Then someone shouted what they saw slicing through the choppy waves. Orcas! Orcas! The orcas kept pace with the boat, slamming into its side and chewing at the rudder, according to its skipper, a photographer on board, and video of the encounter. For about an hour, the crew signaled their predicament to the Spanish Coast Guard and tried to stay calm. There was nothing we could do, said Stephen Bidwell, the photographer, who was two days into a week-long sailing course with his partner when the ramming began. You're in awe, and at the same time, you're nervous. The skipper, Gregory Blackburn, said he wrestled for control of the boat as the orcas banged into it, interfering with the rudder. It's a reminder of where we are in the food chain in the natural world, he said. Eventually, the boat managed to motor back to Morocco, but marine scientists took note of the episode on May 2nd and said it continued a puzzling pattern of behavior by a small group of orcas off the Iberian Peninsula's western coast. The orcas, according to the researchers, have caused three boats to sink since last summer, and disrupted the trips of dozens of others. Wild orcas, although apex predators that hunt sharks and whales, are not generally considered dangerous to humans. The animals, the largest of the dolphin family, have been known to touch, bump, or follow boats, 
but ramming them is unusual, marine scientists say. A small group of orcas, numbering about 15, started to batter boats around Spain in 2020, with researchers calling the behavior uncommon and its motivations unclear. We know that this is a complex behavior that has nothing to do with aggression, said Alfredo López Fernández, a biologist at the University of Aveiro in Portugal, who worked on a study published last June on the subject. The orcas show no signs of wanting to hurt humans, he said. In most sightings, the orcas do not change their behavior or make physical contact, according to the Atlantic Orca Working Group, which began tracking direct interactions as well as sightings in 2020. Since an initial surge that year, orcas have been documented approaching or reacting to vessels about 500 times, causing physical damage about 20% of the time in the high-trafficked seas near Morocco, Portugal, and Spain, the group said. The orcas off the Iberian coasts are considered an endangered population. The group arrives in waters near the Strait of Gibraltar every spring from waters deeper and farther north up the coast in order to hunt tuna. But while they are a usual sight, scientists do not know how to stop the small group's recent behavior, which has left sailors worried about safety and ship damage, and which has caught the attention of Spanish and Portuguese authorities. Every week there is an incident, said Bruno Diaz Lopez, a biologist and the director of the Bottlenose Dolphin Research Institute, who was not involved in last year's research. We really don't know the reason. In the most recent example, orcas battered a sailboat off the coast of Spain, causing it to sink in the early hours of May 5th. The Spanish authorities quickly arrived, and the four people on board were rescued in good humor, said Christoph Winterhalter, the president of the Swiss company that was operating the boat. The University of Aviero biologist, Dr. Lopez Fernandez, said that it was possible that the three boats sank over the past year because they were vulnerable to leaks or not equipped to endure the damage. The condition of the boat was very good, Mr. Winterhalter said of the one his company had chartered. The small group of orcas, including only two adults, were responsible for a majority of interactions with boats, which number some 200 a year and range from the North African coast to France, according to Dr. Lopez Fernandez. Researchers do not know what is behind the behavior. Some have speculated that it is an aversive behavior that could have started after an incident between an animal and a boat, like an entanglement in a fishing line, or an invented behavior from young orcas that is being repeated. Those remain only theories, though Dr. Lopez Fernandez said it appears that the behavior might be passing between local animals. We know that orcas share their culture with their young and with their peers, he said, adding that they learned from imitation. But because the behavior has only been observed in this particular subpopulation of orcas, he said that it was unlikely to pass onto distinct orca groups that populate waters around the world. Given the lack of evidence and the presence of young orcas in the group, other scientists expressed skepticism that the behavior stemmed from a boat incident and believed that the animals might simply be playing. They're getting some sort of reward or a thrill from it, said Eric Hoyt an orca expert and research fellow with the Whale and Dolphin Conservation, a wildlife charity. Play is part of being a predator. Scientists say that aside from having sailors avoid the area, they do not know how to stop orcas from bothering sailboats, which tend to be quieter than most vessels and therefore more attractive to the animals. It has also left conservationists worried about how humans will treat the orca population, especially as sailors in the region express growing frustration with the animals. I hope they stop doing it as quickly as they started, because it's actually imposing a risk on themselves, said Hannes Drager, a marine biologist and the author of The Killer Whale Journals, adding that it was putting pressure on an already vulnerable species. 
Mr. Bidwell, the photographer, said the episode would not stop him and his partner from booking another sailing trip in June, though perhaps with some changes. Maybe we won't go the same route, he said. She smiled and doors opened. The Face Forward column by Rhonda Gerlach. To those of us who grew up in the wake of second wave feminism, Mary Tyler Moore is a powerfully evocative figure. For this group, watching the HBO documentary Being Mary Tyler Moore may prove an emotional experience, conjuring nostalgia of two distinct types. The gentle sort involved in remembering a beloved star of the past, and a more painful nostalgia provoked by recalling a time when womanhood seemed to beckon with new liberating possibilities, and feminism seemed on a steady path forward. In her most famous role as Mary Richards in her self-titled 1970s television show, Ms. Moore offered a dazzling new model of female adulthood, a confident, beautiful, unmarried woman over 30 who supports herself, wears fabulous clothes, finds fulfillment through work and friendship, and enjoys an active love life with no apparent anxiety about finding a husband. As Rosie O'Donnell comments in the film, this image of a woman making her own way in life was seared into her brain. Katie Couric concurs, noting that Ms. Moore's example opened my eyes to, wow, I want to do that too. Who can turn the world on with her smile? The show's memorable theme song asked. A question then answered with an opening montage of Mary's. Laughing with friends, strolling city streets, and, of course, exuberantly throwing her tam into the air. The point was clear. Mary smiled at the world, and it smiled back, welcoming this character into a big life extending far beyond the domestic realm. The Mary Tyler Moore Show marked a transition in television roles for women, turning the page on all the dutiful wives and mothers, marriage-minded girls, and those characters perpetually struggling to transcend their narrow lives. Lucy Ricardo, yearning for show business, Jeannie on I Dream of Jeannie, magical, yet living in a bottle and pining for a man and Samantha Stevens on Bewitched. Again, magical, yet confined to a suburban colonial. Ms. Moore's career played out a version of that transition. She entered television right out of high school as Happy Hot Point, a dancing leotard-clad pixie singing the praises of Hot Point kitchen appliances on The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, a literal embodiment of feminine domestic labor on the most traditional of family sitcoms. Then, as Laura Petrie, on the Dick Van Dyke show in the 1960s, Ms. Moore loosened some of the typical sitcom wife's restraints. She danced and sang, she was funny, she had opinions, and at Ms. Moore's insistence, she swapped out the usual June Cleaver-esque uniform of dresses, pearls, and heels for sweaters, flats, and trousers that showed off her trim figure. But as Mary Richards, Ms. Moore became an icon. She made a feminist statement that got into my bones, Julia Louis-Dreyfus observes in the film. The show's commitment to women was palpable, foregrounding women's friendships, Rhoda, Phyllis, treating timely issues like contraception, pay equity, and feminism, and, according to the documentary, employing more female writers than any sitcom had before. The documentary frames Ms. Moore's life in the context of the women's movement, interspersing footage of feminist rallies, news stories about Roe v. Wade, and clips of Gloria Steinem, and Betty Friedan. But while Ms. Moore's TV self seemed fully in step with feminism, her personal life was more complicated. She didn't think feminism was so hotsy-totsy, says Ms. Moore's close friend, the actress Beverly Sanders. She identified with it up to a point. Unlike the boldly single Mary Richards, 
Ms. Moore had been married virtually her entire adult life. She wed first at 18 and had her only child, a son named Richard, divorced, and soon thereafter married the producer Grant Tinker, who masterminded her career and with whom she founded MTM Enterprises, her wildly successful production company. Not particularly independent at that time, Ms. Moore admitted that she relied heavily upon Mr. Tinker's judgment. I was very much a person who liked being directed and led, she said. Significant challenges beset her years with Mr. Tinker. She suffered a miscarriage and then, at 34, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, whose complications plagued her for the rest of her life. She also battled alcoholism. In 1978, her younger sister Elizabeth died by suicide, and most painful, perhaps, was her distant relationship to her son, with whom she struggled to connect. Friends note often in the film that off-screen, Ms. Moore could seem aloof and detached, unlike her on-screen upbeat self. The Mary Tyler Moore Show ended in 1976, and Ms. Moore embarked on a new Mary Richards-style chapter in her personal life, divorcing Mr. Tinker and moving alone to New York City. Professionally, though, she left Mary Richards far behind and turned her attention to theater and film, proving especially gifted at serious drama. In 1980, Ms. Moore won a special Tony for her portrayal of a quadriplegic hospital patient in Whose Life Is It Anyway? She was nominated for an Oscar for her subtle performance in Robert Redford's directorial debut in 1980, Ordinary People. As Beth, an emotionally closed mother grieving one son's death and coping with the attempted suicide of the other. Ms. Moore saw Beth as reminiscent of my own life, but could never have guessed how much like her life the film would turn out to be. Three weeks after its premiere, Ms. Moore's son, then 24, was found dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound, which was determined to be an accident. In subsequent years, Ms. Moore strove to break through her pain and emotional walls. In her late 40s, she married Robert Levine, a physician 18 years her junior who didn't know who Ms. Moore was when they met. The marriage lasted 34 years, the rest of her life. She married a regular person, notes Manny Asenberg, the producer of Whose Life Is It Anyway? And that regularness seemed exactly what Ms. Moore needed. Footage of the couple relaxing at the ranch they owned provide the most moving and genuine images of the entire documentary, showing an unplugged, makeup-free Ms. Moore running around in casual clothes, teasing her husband, tending lovingly to the horses and dogs she kept. During that time, Ms. Moore found the strength to tackle her drinking. She checked herself into the Betty Ford Center, an experience she described as chiseling down to the real me, the use of chisel suggesting just how unyielding the surface felt to her. While in rehab, she said, she learned, it's not the end of the world if I'm not perfect. I never really confided in people, and I never shared any of the ugly sides. The confession was telling. Had the need for perfection been suffocating Ms. Moore? While surely her own life and past created much of her personality, what role did her career play in this? What damage is done to those, especially women, we turn into idols? Even idols, ironically, of feminist freedoms. In one moving clip in the documentary, Ms. Moore makes a surprise appearance on The Oprah Winfrey Show. Ms. Winfrey was apparently unaware she was coming. Visibly overcome with emotion, eyes brimming, slightly trembling, Ms. Winfrey rushes to embrace Moore. You have no idea what you've meant to me, she says. Ms. Moore is warm and gracious. She likely had a good idea of what she meant for all the former little girls and teenagers who'd projected so much aspiration and ambition onto her, or rather onto a fictional character she played. Being Mary Tyler Moore was never the same as being Mary Richards, but for millions of women the distinction is blurry. 
maybe we need it to be. Mary was aspirational for many of us at a time that really mattered, at a crossroads in American women's history. Yes, she was unrealistic, idealized, and still conforming to certain narrow parameters of beauty, class, and race. But she was what popular culture offered us, and that mattered a lot. There are no on-camera interviews with living people in Being Mary Tyler Moore. In part, this is because most of those featured, including most of her TV castmates, have died. Ms. Moore herself died in 2017 at 80. But even those still alive appear only as voiceovers, narrating footage from years ago. This grants the film a nostalgic preserved in amber effect, situating Ms. Moore's life firmly in the past. It sets the world she represented firmly in the past, too, reminding us that the historical moment when feminism's progress seemed assured has vanished. That inspires quite another type of nostalgia, and it hurts. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Bill Lee, 94, bassist and composer for son Spike Lee's films, is dead. By Robert D. McFadden. Bill Lee, a jazz bassist and composer who scored the early films of his son Spike Lee, wrote folk jazz operas, led an acclaimed ensemble of bassists, and was a prolific sideman for Bob Dylan, Aretha Franklin, and others, died on Wednesday morning at his home in Brooklyn. He was 94. Spike Lee confirmed the death. Over six decades and thousands of live performance and on more than 250 record albums, Mr. Lee's mellow and ebullient string bass accompanied a pantheon of music stars, including as well Duke Wellington, Arlo Guthrie, Odetta, Simon and Garfunkel, Harry Belafonte, Ian and Sylvia, Judy Collins, Tom Paxton, and Peter, Paul, and Mary. Mr. Lee wrote the soundtracks for Spike Lee's first four feature films, a musical challenge that called for capturing the independence of a romantic black woman in She's Gotta Have It, a satirical look at life at a black college in school days, racial violence in Do the Right Thing, and the poignant hardships of a black jazz musician in Mo Better Blues. Billy had small parts in All But Do the Right Thing, and Spike Lee's sister, Joy, had roles in all four. Billy also scored an early Spike Lee short, Joe's Bed-Stuy Barbershop, We Cut Heads, the first student film to be showcased at the Lincoln Center's New Directors New Films Festival in 1983. The feature films won largely positive reviews and reaped sizable profits. Bill and Spike Lee had a falling out in the early 1990s over family matters, money, and other issues that ended their collaboration. Later Spike Lee films, he has directed more than 30, appearing in many of them himself, were scored by the trumpeter Terrence Blanchard. Born into an Alabama family of musicians and educators who instilled a passion for music in him and his siblings, Bill Lee learned drums, piano, and flute early on. He attended segregated small-town public schools and studied music at the historically black Morehouse College in Atlanta. Inspired in his early 20s by listening to the great jazz saxophonist Charlie Parker, Mr. Lee mastered the double bass, the largest and lowest-pitched stringed instrument, and performed with small jazz groups in Atlanta and Chicago before migrating to New York City in 1959. Over the next decade, Mr. Lee, who favored a battered straw hat and often recited his own poetry between numbers, performed often in piano-based duos and piano-based drums trios in smoky clubs that served soul food with jazz, many on the western edge of Greenwich Village, squeezed among meat-packing houses and trucking depots 
in Manhattan's Hudson River shoreline. He recorded extensively on Strata East Records, a musician-owned label, and founded and directed the New York Bass Violin Choir, a troupe of seven basses, sometimes accompanied by piano or saxophone. Critics lauded the ensemble for weaving an agile harmony of pastel and harsh moods in performing Mr. Lee's folk operas at Town Hall, Alex Tully Hall at Lincoln Center, and the Newport Jazz Festival. His numerous operas, including One Mile East, The Depot, and Baby Sweets, were based on people and events from his early life in the South. They sometimes drew on the singing talents of Mr. Lee and his two sisters, Consuela Lee Moorhead, a jazz pianist and music teacher at Hampton University in Virginia, and Grace Lee Mims, a librarian, whose voices lent grand eloquent color to the tales. In a review of a performance by the Violin Choir at the Newport Jazz Festival in 1971, Jonas Wilson of the New York Times wrote, Mr. Lee served as bassist, singer, and narrator of his sketches of small-town life in Snow Hill, Alabama, building both his stories and his music from a rich vein of folk sources. His team of bassists, bending over their unwieldy instruments, produced ensemble passages that were by turns gorgeously warm and singing, or so surprisingly light and airy that one suspected a couple of flutes might be hiding among them. In the 1970s, when the electric bass became an instrument of choice in many jazz ensembles because its thumping tones suited the commercial sounds of jazz rock fusion, Mr. Lee, an acoustic bass purist, refused to go along and lost work as a result. Some things you can't live with, he told the Boston Globe in 1992. Just thinking about doing it, my gut reaction hit me so hard in the stomach. I knew I could never live with myself. Spike Lee explored the problems of commercialism with its racial implications in Mo Better Blues, which starred Denzel Washington as a jazz trumpeter who fights exploitation by white club owners. Musicians are low-priced slaves, whereas athletes and entertainers are high-priced slaves, Spike Lee told the Times when the film opened. It's their music, but it's not their nightclub, not their record company. They have an understanding only of the music, not the business, so they get treated any old way. Despite other differences, Bill and Spike Lee agreed about integrity. Everything I know about jazz I got from my father, Spike Lee told the Times in 1990. I saw his integrity, how he was not going to play just any kind of music, no matter how much money he could make. William James Edward Lee was born in Snow Hill on July 23, 1928, to Arnold Lee, a cornet player and band director at Florida A&M University, and Alberta Grace Edwards Lee a classical concert pianist and teacher. In addition to his sisters Consuela and Grace, he had four other siblings, Clifton, Arnold Jr., Leonard, and Clarence. Their maternal grandfather, William J. Edwards, a graduate of Booker T. Washington's Tuskegee Institute, founded a log cabin art school for black students in Snow Hill in 1893. By 1918, the Snow Hill Normal and Industrial Institute had 24 buildings and 300 to 400 students, pursuing academic subjects and vocational training. Mr. Edwards died a few years later, but the Institute survived as a segregated public school until 1973 when it closed. Bill Lee graduated from there in the mid-1940s. Mr. Lee and his first wife, Jacqueline Shelton Lee, an art teacher, had five children, Shelton, Spike, Christopher, David, Joey, and Sink. After Jacqueline's death in 1976, Mr. Lee married Susan Kaplan, they had one son, Arnold. Christopher died in 2013. Mr. Lee's sister Consuela died at 83 in 2009, and his sister Grace Lee Mims died at 89 in 2019. 
In addition to Spike Lee, he is survived by his wife, his sons David, Sink, and Arnold, his daughter Joy, a brother, A. Clifton Lee, and two grandchildren. After arriving in New York, Mr. Lee settled in Fort Greene, a Brooklyn neighborhood that became a magnet for black musicians and other creative artists who took pride in their lifestyles and their art. The neighborhood was the setting for She's Gotta Have It. The Lee household, overlooking Fort Greene Park, all but banished television, but was awash in music, often with jam sessions that went late into the night, prompting noise complaints from neighbors, but spawning jazz artists who found their sounds in the heart of Brooklyn. During a 2008 interview with the Times at his home, Mr. Lee played piano and double bass. His music has the complex harmonies of bebop and hardbop, but it also has a sincere, down-home, churchy feel, the reporter Corey Kilgannon wrote. His passages move in interesting and unexpected places, but they resolve before long in a way that is simple and sincere, earthy and somehow very satisfying. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the May 25th edition of the New York Times. Your reader has been Jeremy Morlock. Thank you for listening.